Welcome to Brain Levat. Today we're going to be talking about imagination, which is something that is quite close to our hearts because all of our shows start with a thought experiment asking you to imagine something quite fantastical. And so we have one of the world experts in the field on imagination, Amy Kind. Amy, would you like to start with a thought experiment? Sure. I want to ask you to imagine a world in which imagination doesn't exist. No one imagines anything at all, ever. And then I want you to think about what this world looks like. Do kids play games of pretend? How do they even decide what they're going to pretend, given that they can't imagine the possible pretend games? How do they decide anything, given that they can't imagine the different possible outcomes? Let's say that the kids decide that the sofas are boats and that they're pirates, but all they have here are beliefs. So their pretense is going to be rather wooden. I believe I should act like a, a pirate and I believe that pirates act this way. So that's what I'll do. It doesn't really feel like a kid's game of pretend. The kids have no way to immerse themselves into the role. Okay, let's think about this world more broadly. Do scientists still make scientific discoveries in this world? They aren't struck by imaginative inspirations because there's no imagination. How do they design their experiments? Not by imagining different possibilities or different theories or how to test the limits of the theories that they're engaged with because there's no imagination. Do people still plan vacations in this world? How do they go about it? They can't first imagine themselves on the beach and then imagine themselves on the ski slopes. Um, maybe they just make Excel spreadsheets of pros and cons, but then how do they come up with the pros and the cons? They can't imagine them. Does anyone write fiction in this world? How do they come up with a plot? If there is fiction, what's the experience of the readers who engage with it? What do they do? I think once you start to think about it in the world of this thought experiment, actually this podcast wouldn't be able to happen. As you just said, you start off by asking for people to give a thought experiment. How could the guests productively open the show in a, in a world without imagination is implicated in every thought experiment there is. We use imagination to engage with the scenario presented. All of your guests say, oh, imagine a zoo, imagine two worlds, imagine you're working in some really interesting lab somewhere. In my thought experiment of a world in which there is no imagination, I think there would also be no thought experiments. And so I guess I think that what my um, thought experiment shows us is that a world without imagination would be completely dull and uninspiring unproductive and tedious. It would look very different from our world. And I think that engaging in this kind of thought experiment shows us about the ubiquity of imagining in our own world and how much we rely on it for a whole range of activities, a much greater range of activities than you might have initially thought from the more mundane to the more creative, from art to science, from engaging with others to planning for the future, from writing literature and engaging with literature and so much more. I think that's fascinating. It reminds me of a writing workshop that I did. It was a weekend away. It was a writing retreat. And the editor that runs this group for authors, she invited everyone to come to her farm for the weekend. And I'm a sci-fi author, sci-fi horror, but everyone else there uh, were of the older generation. They were very severe Germans and they were all memoir writers. We all had to read what we were writing. I wrote in the morning and that evening I, I read them a piece of an extract from what I was writing. And my stuff is all set about 100 years in the future. It's very body horror oriented. It's set in organ farms and pretty gross, gruesome content. And the, all these severe German authors, they sat around listening to my extract and afterwards they all shook their heads and said, what is this? And I said, it's fiction. It's I'm writing a story. And they said, you mean you write what is not? And I said, yeah, I write what is not. And they said, but hold on, has it happened to your brother? I said, no, there's no organ farms like this. This is set in the distant future. This hasn't happened. They said, but I don't understand. And it, there was this barrier. It was impossible for them to conceptualize, A, how I could have written it, how I guess I could have imagined it out of components that don't exist and be what the value of it is. And I felt like there was just this massive barrier between us that just couldn't be overcome. 
Yeah, I love that anecdote. That's great. It's like my thought experiment in action. I think it's hard to even see what they were writing if they really weren't calling upon their imagination. What we do when we call upon imagination is we try to escape in some way from the here and now. We might imagine things that are around us, but we imagine them differently from how they are now. Or we might imagine something in the future, but still objects that we're familiar with in the here, but not in the now or distant objects. And I suppose that the writers that you were talking about were engaging with the past. And so they were calling upon their memories, but they, it's very unlikely, I think, that they were just doing a straight transcription of every moment of their life. First, I woke up, then I stood up, then I went to the kitchen, then I looked at the clock. And so they had to decide what were they going to put into the memoir and what were they going to leave out and how would it be able to be presented in a way, if they're doing a good job at it, how would it be able to be presented in a way that would be meaningful to the readers? And I bet that even if they don't realize they were doing it, they were... Um, or if they were good at what they were doing, they were imagining an, a reader at some point. Like, how would the reader take this? Am I making myself clear? How do you decide if you're making yourself clear to a reader except by imagining their reaction? Even if you're not writing about what is not and you're writing about what is, I think there's got to be an element of imagination in there somewhere or no one's going to read your work. Without imagination, we could do it, but it's not going to be successful. No one's going to read it. Um, not worth it. <laughs> I'm interested in trying to pin down what it is when we talk about imagination. It yep. seems like there are a series of different kinds of mental states that you could have. Is imagination going to cover all of them? We talked about a, a memory, so a recollection. And it seems like maybe imagination plays a role in that because there's some restructuring of a memory or an edit of it or turning it into something new that you can tell others about. Maybe the imagination's working with it, but that the memory itself is something non-imaginative. And then it seems like there's a conceptual thinking that people have. If you're doing a mathematical exercise and you might not think of that as an imaginative exercise, but as a computational exercise. The other thing, Jason has a number of peculiarities about him, one of which is that he's face blind. He cannot okay. recall faces. And I remember asking him, can't you imagine what your mother's face looks like? And he says, I don't really have a visual memory at all. I think entirely conceptually. In other words, there would be some sort of list of the particular features that are on his mother's face, and he can summon up a list, but it's not put into one thing. In other words, there are two blue eyes and one big nose and big juicy lips, but none of that features into one face. But you talked about the holiday planners who might be able to plan their holiday through spreadsheeting. And I wonder if that's what goes on with some people who do lack a, a visual capacity and whether imagination is necessarily visual or whether one can imagine in this other way. It'd be interesting to think about the range of as I say, mental states that we have and where imagination fits into that range. Yeah, great. First of all, let me be clear that imagination shouldn't be thought to be confined to the merely visual because we can imagine in other sensory modalities as well. A lot of the most common examples are I imagine my dogs and I'm imagining what they look like. But I always have this fear that my dogs are going to break out barking when I'm in the middle of talking. Now I could be imagining my dogs by imagining their furious barking. And that would be an exercise of imagination, but it wouldn't be visual. When we talk about mental imagery or we talk about imagination, I think we default to the visual, but we can do auditory imaginings. I think chefs do imaginings of the kinds of dishes they're gonna prepare, what they'll taste like. The perfumers imagine the smells. Maybe there's also, although this is more controversial, whether people can imagine pain. I think we can, but some people say they can't really imagine pain. Some people say they can't even remember the exact feeling of pain. But in any case, it's beyond the visual domain. But Mark, I think you weren't just talking about that when you were asking me about imagination and other kinds of thinking. And so you might think that there's a kind of purely conceptually driven thought, and maybe that's different from imagination. Sometimes philosophers call this conceiving or supposing. I tend to think of supposing as different from imagining. I think that supposing is very easy to do. Any sentence that comes into your mind, you can just say, 
suppose such and such, and you've done it basically just by laying out the proposition, just by laying out the sentence. But when it comes to imagination, I think some effort is involved. Just having the words run through our mind is not enough for it to really be imagination. I don't know, maybe the vacation planners could get by with some supposition. Maybe the scientists could get by with some with pure supposition in my thought experiment world. But I think we're going to be missing a lot of the richness, a lot of the emotions, a lot of the meaning of what we normally get from, from imagination. This is really blowing my mind because it sounds like I don't imagine things. Ah. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like I just suppose them. Do you not have any mental imagery at all? I do have some. I'm not completely aphantasic. I do have some, but it's minimal. It's very poor quality and it's not my primary mode. My primary mode is to think in propositions. Okay. So I would, I'm a sci-fi author. I've written 14 books and my readers say that there's emotions involved, but it sounds like what I'm doing is not imagining events. I'm supposing events happen and then best guessing how people respond, the characters involved. Well, I, I don't know. I'd love to probe this a little more if that's okay. I mean, I mean, do you, because I, I am very interested in, in questions about aphantasia. So aphantasia, it's a condition that we've known about for a very long time. There were studies in the late 19th, early 20th centuries that uncovered it, but it's re, regained prominence just in the last 10 or 20 years. Some studies coming out of the UK and after one of these studies was published, some huge number of people wrote into the researchers reporting that they thought that they were aphantasic. So it's been really coming up a lot lately. But in most cases, or in many cases, the inability to form mental imagery is um, not across all sensory domains. It might be that some people who are aphantasic with respect to visual images can nonetheless have auditory images. And so in your case, for example, if you could have this sort of emotional presentation of your readers, even if you can't imagine their faces or you can't form mental images of their faces, it might be that you're able to put yourself emotionally in their shoes. And mm. so that is definitely a kind of imagining. And that might be one of the most important kinds of imagining for writing fiction, uh, more than the visual imagery kind. Yes, I think I definitely do that. I, I can imagine how I would feel in certain situations I can imagine how my characters with their distinct personalities would feel in certain situations and then make them respond appropriately. But yeah, it does sound like I can imagine, but not visually then. That's interesting. Yeah. And maybe for what the kind of writing that you're doing, that's what sells. That's what's important. And I've read some things that say you actually don't want to describe the visual presentations of your characters too much because you want to leave it to the reader to be able to imagine what they look like. You just provide a key detail, the scar on Harry Potter's forehead or the color of his eyes, the bushiness of Hermione's hair or whatever it is. You don't want to do it as if you're just describing a photograph. It's a better experience for the readers if you don't. And so likewise, in your case, maybe the visual imagination isn't as important as the other stuff. I think that's true. And it raises a very interesting corollary question, which is, why is it that when we're imagining non-existent things, we're able to generate emotions in readers or in viewers of a movie. Why is it that when a character in a book or a character on a film does something, when he's chased by a monster, for example, why is it we are worried, we're scared on his behalf? Yeah, that's a really good question. And it's something that philosophers have worried a lot about because it seems as if when we're reading fiction, or engaging with a movie, say, watching a movie, it seems as if certain reactions are appropriate and certain reactions are inappropriate. It would be weird not to feel moved by the death of a main character. It would be weird not to be angry when something happens. I was just talking about Harry Potter. I'm thinking now about Dumbledore's death. It would be weird if you thought that was like funny or you were filled with joy about that. You should be sad when it happens. You might understand why it has to happen to further the plot, but nonetheless, you should be sad. But now we say you should be sad. Why should you be sad that this non-existent person 
died. There's no actual death there. Suppose you read an account in the newspaper that there are mountain lions running around your neighborhood. Like they've come down from, you probably don't have mountain lions where you are. But anyway, a mountain lion's coming down, coming down, coyotes coming down and they're running around your neighborhood. And you might be scared. You might think, oh, I shouldn't walk my dogs early in the morning because the, the mountain lions might be there and it'll be scary. And then suppose the next day in the paper, you read a correction. And it's, oh, no, there were no mountain lions. Those were all false reports. And so it would be weird for you to say, oh, I'm really scared of those mountain lions. I know there are no mountain lions in the neighborhood, but I'm really scared of the mountain lions in the neighborhood. Once you know that there are no mountain lions, it's weird that you'd be scared of the mountain lions. We as readers know there's no such person as Dumbledore. Why are we sad when we read the words that he died or why are we happy when Harry is victorious at the end? It's it, why do we have these reactions? That's something that philosophers have worried a lot about. It's often referred to as the paradox of fiction. And so basically, just to sum up the paradox, it's how can we have genuine and rational emotional responses to the events in fiction, given that we know that none of them happen, that none of those exist? So it's pretty puzzling. So there's some way in which we can understand how you should have certain kinds of emotions, given the, the world that's been created, as you say, a beloved character dies, and you feel sad. But there's some sense in which fiction allows you to have other kinds of emotional responses. If you think about horror, for example, one could feel terror. But one of the common responses to people watching someone being, you know, torn to shreds by the, the slasher killer is to laugh. If you did that in real life, if you had a home invasion and you burst out laughing, we'd think that was an inappropriate response. If you were laughing while your loved ones were being killed, we'd say that's the wrong emotion. But it's not necessarily the wrong emotion in the fictional realm, that we seem to be allowed to have these other kinds of inappropriate responses. What is it that... Uh, creates that space or makes it okay to have these you know, irrational emotions? It's funny because I was just talking with my sister on the weekend and she was reminding me of this time that she was visiting me and I jammed my hand into the doorframe and I got this really big splinter like under my nail. And my sister is a medical doctor. I was like, help. And she just started laughing hysterically. And I was just you deal with your patients laughing. And eventually she settled down and was able to remove this gigantic splinter from my finger. But the point is, we have these same kind of, my sister might be a little unusual, but I'm sure we've all had this experience where we're confronted with something that we should take very seriously. It's horrible. And our first reaction is to laugh. I don't know. Is that just a stress releaser? Is that what we do in real life? Maybe it's something similar in the movie. Slasher movies, there is sometimes elements of humor in them. I think if we really wanted to get the puzzle going there, we would have to consider a case in which there was no humor intended. There was no humor, not intended, but some kind of like inadvertent weirdness in the movie where it's, oh, that's so... Um, unrealistic. How on earth could that happen? And so you should be laughing at the character's naivete or something like that. We set aside all of that. And it's just a case where there's pure horror going on. And do we laugh then? I'm not so sure. But insofar as we do, I think it's not that different from certain things that we might do in real life as a stress release. And the puzzle, the real puzzle is what's going on with that fear? You're not in danger. You know, no one's coming at you with a knife, even if it's presented in that sort of realistic way where the character holding the knife is coming at you towards the camera. No one's actually coming at you. There's no one there with a knife. And so why are you scared? We might say, oh, it's a kind of fear analog or it's a quasi fear. I don't know if that sounds plausible to you all. It's never really sounded plausible to me, especially with respect to sadness for me. When I'm really sad about something that happens in a book, it sure feels to me exactly like the kind of sadness I feel when I'm genuinely sad about something that's happened in real life. To call it quasi sadness that, that never quite sits with me. So anyway, one way we could go to get out of the puzzle is to say, oh no, it's this kind of quasi fear. It's this kind of quasi terror. And a lot, I don't think many people find that plausible. Another thing that we could try is to say, oh, it's 
um, irrational, just like you were inclined, Mark, to say that the the laughter was irrational. We could also just dismiss the fear as irrational, like having reactions to fiction, having emotional reactions to fiction, those just all should go. I don't know how Jason and other authors would feel about that. Like they feel like I think they're writing to generate some emotional responses. And the idea that when readers have them, they're just being irrational. That's not so satisfying either. We want to find some other way around it, I think. Um, That is, we don't want to dismiss the emotions as not real. We don't want to dismiss the emotions as irrational. And probably what we'd be better off doing is seeing if we're drawing too tight a connection to belief in the real and the emotion. Maybe we don't actually need to have a belief that such and such is happening for the emotion to be a real emotion and for it to be appropriate. That's, I think, probably the most plausible way out of of this puzzle. It reminds me of an experiment that's been done many times. It's an experiment that psychologists do and physical therapists. The psychological version of it is they'll take a person, they'll take their arm and they'll ask them to lay it on the table and then they'll show them there's this fake left arm. It's, it's not real. It's a rubber arm. And, and they'll show them it's a rubber arm. And they'll place it where their left arm would be on the table. And they'll ask them just to put their left arm away. But they'll set up a mirror so that they can't see the, the rubber arm directly. They can just see a reflection of it. But it looks as if it's their arm. And they'll stroke their hand. They'll stroke their arm at the same time as they stroke in the mirror the left arm. And the brain starts to associate the sensation in their real arm with the sensation in this non-existent arm. And then out of nowhere, they take a knife and they stab the rubber arm and people yelp. They say that they're in pain. And the physical therapy corollary of that is where someone has lost an arm and they feel phantom limb pain, which can be excruciating and, and go on day and night and keep people up. They'll set up the same experiment by showing them that they have this non-existent arm and allowing them to imagine it, and then perhaps stroking it and soothing the arm, that pain can disappear. And pain that some amputees have suffered for decades has been cured this way. It really does seem what's happening is that there's this step, the step from, I imagine this is the case. And so it, it feels as if it is, and our brains are wired to do that. And then you've got, boom, you've got what you want from, that's a psychological explanation of what's going on. I understand there's still a paradox here. There's still a set of propositions that don't seem to make sense together. Namely that we have an emotional response to a non-existent entity and we generally don't do that. So how's this possible? But this seems like a psychological explanation of what's going on. Yeah, I, I definitely recommend people look up rubber hand illusion videos because they're really fun to watch. Once in class, we were talking about this and a, one student demonstrated it to the class and they chose actually the most skeptical student, the one who really didn't believe this was going to work to demonstrate the rubber hand illusion on. And that student, sure enough, he pulled his hand away. In our case, it was a hammer, not a knife. But when the hammer came down, he sure imagined that it was coming down on his actual hand and not on the rubber hand. I think you were just giving a kind of psychological explanation about why we have these reactions, the reactions that we do. And so one question we might ask, is that enough to dissolve the paradox? You were expressing that maybe it's not, but we might think we can tell an evolutionary story or we can tell a psychological story about why it would be good for us to have these kinds of emotional responses, even in cases where there wasn't danger or where we didn't believe there was danger, because maybe maybe it's better for us to flee more often than not to flee at all. And so we might be wired to be quick triggered in certain respects to having these emotional responses to responding to imagined danger, not just actual danger. Now, of course, if we responded too much to just merely imagined danger, we couldn't get on with our day, but maybe there is a sort of sweet spot there that benefits us without making us paralyzed in various respects. We can tell that maybe evolutionary story. And then what does it say for us about the paradox? We might actually be able to use that story, depending on what we mean by rationality, when we're talking about the rationality of emotions. If rationality there has something to do with like helpful or 
appropriate for the species, then maybe we can resolve the paradox by employing that kind of story to say that we were putting too strong, too um, strict a condition on when an emotion is appropriate and when it's not. We might be able to use some of that story that you just told to get us out of the paradox, even if the story itself doesn't quite do it. I think it can help us see our way towards relinquishing this tight connection between emotion and belief. We might use that kind of story to do that. Do you think we can make moral assessments about what people imagine? You could have someone having a situation where they're imagining themselves doing something virtuous. They say, I'm in India and I'm being Mother Teresa and I'm looking after these lepers and they uh, you know, strongly identify with this fantasy that they have versus someone else who says, I hate my boss so much that I imagine getting a garrote and slowly severing their head off and just watching the air come out of them and the blood ooze out of their neck. And they, they think about this very vividly. Should we have any moral assessment of either of those two imaginative exercises? You're able to describe that pretty vividly there. It was almost <laughs> so, I was thinking the same. <laughs> and um, I don't even have a boss. I work for myself. <laughs> so I think a lot of times when we ask that kind of question, I think we need to separate a couple of different things. One question we might ask is, how does this affect the likelihood that we're going to engage in a certain kind of action? And it could go different ways. So just to run with your garrot story. Um, so if imagining that makes it more likely that you're going to go order online a garrot and attack your boss, then we might think, oh, well, that's a really bad fantasy because it led to this bad action. Or if imagining it released a certain kind of urge, you were able to satisfy the urge in imagination that otherwise you would have satisfied in real life, we might say, oh, the imagination, the fantasy was beneficial because it, it prevented the action. That's one way that we could answer the question. But notice there, we're not really talking intrinsically about whether the imagination, the act of imagination is bad or good. We're focusing solely on its downstream effects and we're judging imagination based on those downstream effects. But we might want to just ask, like, is it a bad thing to imagine these? E even if there's going to be no consequence in life, is it a bad thing? Since you like thought experiments, we can do a little thought experiment here. We have two worlds, solitary occupant in each world, only one, one thing, just to simplify. And in one, the solitary occupant of the world is imagining like daisies and flowers and whatever. And in the other, the solo occupant of the world is imagining these grisly murder scenes, right? Constantly, like constantly fantasizing about them. And so we might ask, is one world worse than the other? Now there can be no downstream consequences because there's no one else in the world. Insofar as you're inclined to think that the world in which the solo occupant is imagining grisly murders is worse than the world in which the solo occupant is imagining daisies and roses, then that would suggest that imagination in and of itself is morally problematic. There's just something wrong to imagine those things. Now, I'm not sure I have a good explanation here, but I am inclined to think that it would be a better situation overall if we, even if there are no downstream effects, better to be imagining daisies and tulips than to be imagining grisly murders. But I don't know if I could give um, a full story about that. I think so. this is an interesting problem generally with, with thought experiments, is that it's quite hard to divorce ourselves from reality. I think it's a good thought experiment and I think it crystallizes it perfectly well. We might think, for example, let's say I, I fantasize about murdering a particular person that if that person exists, they have an interest in being thought of well, and I'm setting that interest aside, and that makes it wrong, even if they never find out about it. But the case you've given is even starker than that, which is you are the only occupant in this world. The question is, if we do take the view that the one world is preferable to the other, or the one set of imagination is preferable to the other, I'm not sure we have any reason to think why. One of the views, for example, is that 
Morality cannot exist in such a world. Morality necessarily must require other people, that there is no way to be immoral and we're the only occupant of a world. And, and you also just think that it's neutral. And then maybe what we're feeling is some kind of aesthetic repugnance, that this person is doing something unseemly by imagining this thing that we think is grisly, but it's a different kind of bad state of affairs. And if it's aesthetic, then maybe you want to say, what do those flowers look like? Is this person imagining very boring flowers? Then I want to have a negative aesthetic judgment. Is the other person imagining very beautiful scenes of murder? That this is the kind of Fellini of uh, imagining murders. And we think, wow, what an exquisite thing to do with your time. In which case, we might want to have a positive aesthetic assessment. Yeah, I like that aesthetic assessment line. And I don't quite know what to say about the absence of morality in such a world. Like we can't have morality in a world with just one occupant. We need, in order to get the thought experiment going, we do need to keep it to a solo occupant because otherwise it's hard to really imagine that there could be no downstream effects. Like as much as I try to say, no, it's really never going to lead you to the murder. We need the solo occupant. But I guess if we can build in morality in some way, we might say something like, it just makes you a worse person. Like your character is worse if you're imagining these things rather than those things. And so it doesn't say anything about interpersonal morality, but it says something about your character. And that wouldn't be just a judgment in aesthetics. It's not about interpersonal morality, but it does maybe give us a way to talk about your character traits. One reason to think that uh, you definitely could assert aesthetic value or disvalue to a particular piece of imagination is if you think about dreams, it seems that dreams are really close to imagination? That's a good question, whether they are. But just insofar as they are, it seems like some dreams are quite a lot better than others. Not just in terms of nicer to feel, maybe not just in terms of making you feel better or worse, but some dreams are quite remarkable. Like I was once in psychoanalysis and my psychoanalyst loved doing dream work. And I told him a particular dream and he said, oh, this is a good one. And what he meant by that is it, it had all sorts of connections to my psyche and offered all sorts of rich, uh, fertile soil to dig. But what he also meant was there's, there's a lot of substance here, which there isn't necessarily in other dreams that I might have had. It seems, and that was also an aesthetic assessment. I guess I should just agree that we can make aesthetic assessments about the two worlds. I didn't mean to suggest we couldn't. I was mainly trying to ask whether that could be, whether that's the whole story, whether we could also have a moral assessment. And just, I, I like your psychoanalysis example. There, as you noted, there's a big issue about the relationship between dreams and imagining, but let's just focus on dreams, quad dreams for a second, not worrying about whether that's an imagining or not. I think when your psychoanalyst said, this is a good one, he meant that it was giving, and you basically said this, it was giving him some insight or her some insight into your character. And so that connects very closely, I think, with what I was trying to say about the, our possible assessment of the two worlds thought experiment, the solo occupant thought experiment, which is that maybe the imagining say something about your character. Your dream was good, maybe aesthetically, certainly aesthetically, but it was also good for what it told us about you, what it told the psychoanalyst about you. And so the dream has something to do with your character and the imaginings in the world has something to do with the solo occupant's character. And so that gives us a way to assess beyond the mere aesthetic, although we can also make the aesthetic assessments that Mark was talking about. Even more than that, dreams might be the case you need. Dreams are solo occupant worlds. Yeah, that's, oh, that's interesting. But then we that creates further problems about what's within the dream. What are we assessing? Are we assessing the world of the dream? Or are we assessing what's being dreamed? And rabbit holes, we always go down rabbit holes. I've got a couple of thoughts on this. The first would be dreaming is an interesting case because in some dreams it's involuntary. In other words, things happen to you. We can imagine uh, the lucid dreamer who knows they're dreaming and then is constructing a dream world and doing things in that world. And that seems very similar to the case that you've asked us to imagine. And you can imagine the dreamer who says, I want to walk through a field of daisies. And the dreamer says, I want to rape and kill all of my family members. And I want to do it slowly and deliciously. And then there's these questions about character. Now, I'm wary about this view that we could say anything about your character based on solely your mental states. I'll say this for two reasons. The one is that generally when we think about allocating a virtue to someone, we think that it requires actual practice in the world. To be generous 
is not merely to think generous thoughts about other people, it is to go out and give charity. Uh, to be brave is not merely to imagine yourself doing brave things, it's to go out and do them. And so in the absence of action, it seems that you can't get any virtues. And it seems strange in a sense that you could have the vices despite the actions. So even though you never go and do anything cruel, you never go out and actually harm someone, you just imagine yourself doing it, we want to say well, this tells us something about your character. And so I think there's a, an asymmetry there that seems unfair. The other one is that there are a certain breed of people, one of whom is in this conversation, who for a living imagine killing people. Jason's writing body horror. In other words, his job requires him to put himself in this mental state where he's imagining the most brutal thing you could do to someone else. And quite vividly, you know, um, how to do that. We don't think that Stephen King is a bad person because he writes the books that he writes or that Jason, you know, has some kind of vice because he spends his days imagining these horrible things. We might actually think you have the virtue because the virtue would be some kind of aesthetic virtue, maybe it's some kind of wisdom, and it's a virtue because you're actually doing it. You're not merely imagining you're producing the work. Yeah, that's my concern with the virtue account of mental states. Yeah, I don't know what to say about Jason and his imaginings, but I guess one thing I was thinking about just to throw another case into the mix to get some more intuitions going is suppose someone's in a committed monogamous relationship and their partner is constantly fantasizing about a sexual relationship with someone else and not going to act on it. Let's just stipulate that I can't do it in a solo world because I need a relationship, but let's just say as sure as we can be, not going to act on it. But so we have the one relationship with no fantasizing about a sexual relationship with someone else. And then the relationship where the partner is fantasizing about the sexual relationship. My intuition is most people would prefer the relationship where their partner isn't fantasizing about that constantly to the one where their partner is. Are we irrational for making that judgment? We're not. We don't. I think there's a famous quote by Jimmy from Jimmy Carter, former American president, something about committing adultery in his heart because of fantasizing. I don't think in that case, we actually think that the partner committed adultery, but yet we, I think a lot of people would feel somewhat wronged by that, or at least that it cheapens their relationship or again, if it's a monogamous relationship or something like that. That's just another case to throw into the mix about moral accountability for, for imaginings and our judgments to them. Maybe we don't have a quite a good story yet about why we hold each other morally accountable for imaginings, but we do. And maybe just to go back, I'm thinking more about the imaginings of authors like Jason, but maybe there's a certain sense where you're imagining something for the purpose of something else versus you're imagining something that you own. That is, you're imagining it because you're enjoying imagining it, like for its own sake. And so maybe there's a way, I don't know, I'm just feeling my way, but maybe there's a way we could draw a distinction there to get horror and science fiction authors off the hook. Like we don't hold them morally responsible for writing all those gory murders. It seems like the fiction author is doing something even worse. The person who idly sits on their couch imagining this stuff is it's just their own internal states. The fiction writer is encouraging other people to imagine these horrible things and then profiting off of all this uh, gloom, doom, and gore. They seem you hope we're profiting. We, we hope we're profiting. Uh, <laughs> writing fiction is hard work and doesn't pay very well. But yeah, it, it, do, it does seem in that way worse, but it has a different end. The end is to entertain, not to horrify. I'm inclined to think that this could take our conversation in a slightly different direction and thinking about the aim here and the end of fiction. But I was thinking there might be certain kinds of cases where the purpose is, is not just to get your readers to imagine the murders, but to get your readers to empathetically connect with some of the characters. We're not just imagining the murders for pure, I mean, look, there are some works maybe where we're imagining the murders for pure entertainment. And so let's just set those aside for a second. But in many cases, we're imagining the horrible things in the work in the service of a different or further emotional reaction, empathizing with the characters to whom these horrors have befallen, trying to figure out how one lives after these tragedies. And there, fiction can be enormously helpful. I, I was just talking the other day about how much I think we learn from science fiction and how it helps us 
I love science fiction, how it helps us explore possibilities that we can't necessarily encounter and try out our reactions to, I wasn't thinking of grisly murders, but try out our reactions to aliens and robots. And I think it's really good to try those out and to see how we should, would behave in those kinds of situations and develop our capacity for empathy with the kinds of beings that we don't necessarily interact with in, or can't in our daily life. Yeah, it seems like fiction is valuable for at least two reasons. The one is, as you say, imagining future events and perhaps preparing for them properly. And another is empathy, putting yourself in someone else's shoes and the combination of the two, putting ourselves in the shoes of, of others as they might traverse various futures. For example, our, our children or grandchildren, you might care about climate change, not because of how you will suffer in your lifetime, but how your descendants will suffer or how humanity's descendants will suffer. Something I'm curious about, which you spoke about at the beginning, but has become more important as this conversation has gone on, is imagination voluntary or involuntary? At the beginning, you spoke about how imagination requires some work, that it's harder than supposing. But it seems like sometimes we imagine involuntarily. If dreams are, are, are an instance of imagination, then it seems like that's involuntary. And another example would be daydreaming. And I imagine some sexual fantasies are quite involuntary, but then it seems like some imaginings are highly voluntary, like the author who sits and ponders for hours at a time to try and work out a plot hole. That definitely seems like voluntary imagination, but there doesn't seem like the run of the mill type of imagination for people who aren't coming up with fictional stories. Good. I think dreams are tricky. Let me set aside dreams for a minute. Some people take dreams to be imaginings. There's a view called the imagination model of dreaming, but others do not. And so how exactly we're going to categorize dreams, I think is tricky. But I think we can get the point going from your other examples equally well. Sometimes imaginings feel like compulsion. We can't help but imagine these things. But an example I often use is when my kids were young, I often, my younger son had this horrible tendency of not paying any attention to anything in the world at an age older than this should have been possible. I was always worried he was going to run out into the parking lot without looking at an age where the people he was with were not going to think, oh, I need to hold the hand of this boy. He's old enough to know. But I would imagine these horrible things happening. And I didn't want to be imagining these horrible things happening, but I couldn't help myself from imagining these things. And I, I, I don't know that I quite want to say it was a compulsion, but I would have preferred not to be imagining these horrible scenarios. And yet I was. So that's one example. Another example in the non-visual domain, people often find it especially compelling to think about when a song gets stuck in your head. And so you're imagining the song again and again, earworm. And there, it's, I can't stop myself from imagining it. I wish I could. I, I, I wish I could imagine something else if you have one of these overactive internal stereos. Those are cases where we seem unable to stop imagining something that we've started or where it seems like imagining is non-voluntary and is not under our voluntary control. And so those do present something of a puzzle for the view that I was adverting to earlier, where I do take imagining, well, I certainly take imagining to involve something more, and usually the something more requires effort. But then also I do tend to think of imagination as voluntary. Here's one way to think about it. Imagination here is often contrasted with perception. Let's just take visual perception. There's certain things you can do to control what you perceive, like you can close your eyes or you can turn away. But in general, perception isn't the subject to the will. Like I can't make myself perceive my dogs in the room right now because my dogs aren't in the room right now. There's nothing I can do to make myself perceive that right now. But with imagining, um, imagining is subject to the will in a way that perception isn't. So maybe I can't always control it as well as I'd like. Maybe I can't always turn it on or turn it off the way I want to, but I don't need the world to cooperate in the way that the world needs to cooperate um, for perception. And so imagination is subject to the will in a way that perception is not. Now, sometimes we can't get it to stop. Sometimes maybe we can't do it as well as we want, but in general, it's under our control. And there are things that we can do to imagine this rather than that. 
which don't just involve putting ourselves in a position. Like with perception, we can put ourselves in a position to perceive certain things, but we can't make ourselves perceive that. With imagining, it's not just that we can put ourselves in a position to imagine, we can actually make ourselves imagine. That's, I think, the best way to think about the voluntariness of imagination. That's very interesting because putting yourself in the position is exactly what I have to do as a novelist to come up with a new plot point. The way I do it is I get into the bath and I just lie there for hours and hours and just wait for my imagination to work. But I have to do that. I have to put myself in the position. It really does seem quite parallel to putting yourself in the position of the dog in your room to perceive the dog in a way that's dissimilar to imagining the dog in the room. I can imagine the dog in the room. I can maybe even imagine your dog in my room if I were to see your dog. But it would be very difficult for me to imagine a fresh character by force of will. I think a lot of authors feel this way, that there's something quite involuntary, even though you are creating the circumstances where that effort of imagination will be more successful. I can't predict what that character is going to be when he pops into my head. Good. There's a lot to think about there. First of all, I think once the imagination gets going, once the character does pop into your head or the scenario does pop into your head, I suspect that you do take some conscious control of it or some control of it. The books don't write themselves. Even in cases where it's going really well, I don't think the books write themselves. And so you're doing some effortful voluntary imagining along the way. I think probably, look, I don't know exactly what's going on with you in the bath, but presumably, you know, one reason why it works for you is you've gone away from the distractions. So there's not going to be other stuff going on. So you can just let your mind work. And I don't know, I wonder if there are, you'd have to try to pay more attention the next time it happens and see, but are you directing thoughts in certain ways? And when your mind drifts this way, do you sometimes rein it back in? That's not a productive way to go. Do you sometimes try to direct your mind in another direction? Try to direct your imaginings in another direction? An image, maybe we, I don't know if med- visual images might not pop into your head because of what we talked about earlier. But if you're thinking a certain way, I think you're probably then adding to it, directing it, combining things. And, and all of that is a different experience from perceiving. You're, you're controlling parts of the process. I wonder about the kinds of, let's say, beings who lack the capacity to have mental states. If we think about a sophisticated android, mm-hmm. does it make sense to say that they imagine? First, we have to back up because I'm not so sure that sophisticated androids don't have mental states, but okay. Now, haven't you read a lot of science fiction where they fall in love and where they have emotions and where they have all sorts of other things? But let's work with a slightly less sophisticated android who does, I I don't know, we're talking about some kind of machine where we're pretty confident it doesn't have mental states. One thing to think about if we actually don't have to go to science fiction for this, there are a lot of artificially intelligent systems or robots that produce creative outputs now. There are programs that write music. There are programs that create art. And obviously there are programs that win it go and win it Jeopardy and do all sorts of things like that. But let's focus on the music and the art. When people hear the music and the art, or they read the poetry that the computer has generated, a lot of times they would be inclined to say that it's very creative. And sometimes these machines are referred to even as imagination machines. But I want to be a little cautious there. I think I would want to separate our judgment about the novelty of the output from our judgment about the mental or let's say internal processes that produce the output. And it might be that we can have a creative output without an imaginative process. I don't think it's enough to backwards conclude, oh, the machine must be imagining because it produced this great piece of art, or it must be imagining because it produced this great symphony. In order to know whether it imagined or not, we need to know what's going on inside it. And, it, and we can take the symphony or the artwork or the poetry as evidence It is certainly relevant, but I don't think it tells us about whether there's imagination going on. I guess I think it's certainly conceptually possible, perhaps actual, like I don't know enough about how these machines work, but I I think many of these machines that are described as creative may very well not be engaging in acts of imagination. 
And so likewise, we might be able to have semi-sophisticated androids where we don't think that they have genuine desires, genuine emotions, genuine beliefs, or genuine imaginings. But yet they are able to engage in very sophisticated behavior and perhaps produce creative behavior. How exactly we tell whether they're imagining, that's the question. It's the question of how we know about the mental states of machines. And I don't think it's any harder for imagining than any other mental state, but it's no easier either. I don't have an answer on that. But I think in principle, there could be imagining machines. Sure, why not? But what do we need to know whether they're imagining? We need to know a little bit more than just what they're doing. Something I'm very curious about, which refers back to how we started this discussion and relates to the Android, is whether imagination always requires the senses. We spoke a bit earlier about how imagination doesn't have to be visual. It can be other senses. But does it have to involve a sense? Can I imagine a world where, you know, like in all the movies, imagine a world where there's volcanoes everywhere and no people around. It seems like there's no sensation going on there, but I can imagine this world. Or is that just supposing? Now, the reason I mentioned this is because perhaps the reason why we are resistant to the idea of androids imagining is because we don't think androids have sensations the way we do. So I personally have a pretty sensory-based conception of imagination. That's how I think of imagination. Not all imagination researchers share my view. I do take a broad stance on what counts there as sensory, or I want to expand that. I already expanded the notion of mental image so that it can refer to other sensory modalities, but I want to extend it to sensory presentation more broadly so that we can talk about pain images, and then I'd want to extend it so that emotional presentations would count as well. If, but if we're understanding sensory in that broad sense, then I do think that imagination requires something of that. That's what distinguishes it as a mental activity from other related mental activities. And I think that's what gets it going. I think if you're really complying with the voiceover instruction to imagine a world where you're not just having the words run through your head, you're doing something more and you are exploring the scenario in some rich way, doesn't have to be visual, but you are seeing the scenario, you're constructing the scenario, you're feeling the scenario, something like that. Not necessarily every detail. I don't think every detail of the imagined scenario has to be written into what's flashing before your mind's eye, so to speak. But on my view of imagination, there has to be something like sensory presentation involved. Well, I want to thank you for an absolutely delightful conversation. We really covered a, a lot of fantastic ground and it's nice to chat to someone who's cross-trained in so many philosophical disciplines and you could you know, really uh, speak very well to a whole range of topics. Thoroughly enjoyable and we, we hope to have you back on the show sometime soon. Cool. I really enjoyed this conversation and so, I, yeah, I'd be happy to come back.